Right, we're spending four weeks looking at this very thing, voices at the cross. Uh, I think I would say the cross is the major focus of the life of Jesus Christ, the biggest action point, you could say, of his life. And what we're trying to say is, well, let's stop and look at the words. Last week, I looked at the words, Father, forgive. We're going to read the same passage if you're here. If not, please turn with me to Luke 23. Luke 23. I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to look at another voice that was heard at the cross. Luke 23 and verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. That's Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Some of us might have heard these words many times before. For some of us it might be the first time we've ever heard them. We've got to try and put this into context. These three guys were not just sat in Costa having a chinwag. You know, it wasn't just a laid back, a pint at the Grove pub in Ealing, thinking, oh, what should we chat about? What's the conversation? This wasn't some sort of social interaction, half time in a football match. Crucifixion, execution is what they were going through. The most horrific, shameful, painful way to die. I have seen the film Mel Gibson, The Passion of Christ. I was in the cinema and literally people wept with the horror of, of the scenes that were in front. I've not shown it to my kids. It's an 18. Crucifixion was reserved for violent criminals, runaway slaves, and political rebels against Rome. Basically, therefore, these two guys that are talking to Jesus, we would call terrorists. It's funny, we so often imagine there is a green hill far away. I'll be honest, I've raised my kids up to understand it. But this, it wasn't just some nice picture, you know, a nice green dome and three crosses. The whole thing was to humiliate Jesus. He died with what would have been considered the scum, the despised, the rejected, the guilty, the scoundrel. I am not trying to justify this at all. I don't know if you remember, about a year ago, maybe slightly longer, the horrific scenes we saw out of Iraq when the American soldiers had captured people when they hooded them, 
when literally they were urinating upon these things. I mean, it was gross. That is almost what crucifixion was in these days. It was like we would degrade you. We're in char- you know what I'm saying? This is the setting of these words that we're listening to. Someone said, I don't know what's more amazing, to find Jesus in such bad company or to find the criminals in such good company. It doesn't surprise me that Jesus was amongst sinners. On this life, when he lived on this earth, he was labeled the friend of sinners. What I do know this, and you might say, I don't even know if I'm a sinner. The Bible would say it's a funny term. If you've thought, said, or done anything that's wrong, anything less than perfection, if you've not done the good that you should have done, then you're a sinner. But actually, I would take from this, Jesus wants to talk with those that aren't perfect. One commentator said, and I read it this week, multitudes, and I include myself, will thank God for all eternity that the Bible contains the story of the penitent thief. And I think there's loads for us to look at. Someone else said, the conversion of the thief at the cross is one of the most marvelous spiritual experiences recorded anywhere in Scripture. Father, I pray that as we look at this story, I pray that we'd be a group that marvel not at ourselves, but just marvel at the truth of this. As we think about these voices at the cross, as we, as we think about this horrific scene, but some of the words that are said, I pray that you get the truth into us. I pray for some of us that have, let's be honest, heard this more years than we'd like to remember. I pray that again you'd speak to us fresh. For some that think, I've never thought about these words before. I pray that you'd speak to them this morning. Amen. What we do know, we know that there's two criminals. But actually, there's loads of stuff we don't know about them. We do not know their names. We do not know what crimes they've done. We don't know their family situations. We don't know where they've come from. You know, there's loads of facts that I would look at this and think, give me a few more details. We don't know the details of this. What we do know is that they were both suffering the pain of crucifixion. We do know that they're both guilty of crime. We do know that they'd both seen the sign over Jesus' head, King of the Jews. We do know they'd both heard the words that Jesus had cried out last week, Father, forgive. We can assume that both of them wanted to be saved from death. But this is what I find really challenging about this story, is they have a totally different approach to Jesus. One of them says, one of the criminals who's hang railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. Let's be honest, he didn't even make up this accusation because I read earlier that the, the chief priests and the leaders, they were crying this out. You see, what this one criminal does, I just call him criminal one. What criminal one does is he disputes the claims of Jesus. He doesn't accept Jesus as the Son of God. He doesn't accept him as the Messiah, the one who came to save. He doesn't accept Jesus as the one who will forgive. But what he does do is he says to Jesus, I want you to do something for me. I want you to save me. I want you to rescue me from the predicament that I'm in. I don't know about you, sometimes, if we're honest, I meet other people that would like to insult God but still expect them, him to give them a good life. You know, it's almost like, well, I don't believe in God, but why does he allow suffering? You know, I can't stand the thought there's a God in heaven, but it doesn't seem fair. 
Uh, another commentator said that I read, to save people simply from the temporary consequences of their sin without first bringing them to repentance and reconciliation to God would not be true salvation at all. I think this is partly what this person wanted. He didn't really want to understand how he'd offended God. He didn't really want to understand who Jesus was. What he really wanted was my consequences sorted. So what he was really approaching Jesus like was a bit like fairy godmother. You know, Christmas season starts coming round. You go to a panto. There's this person turns up with a wand. You know, she's a ting. No, okay, well, that's my childhood come out. You know, maybe not yours. But sometimes you see, I think that we can almost approach Jesus like that. What we're really saying is, Jesus, I'd like you to be my fairy godmother. I'd like you to turn up and wave a wand and make my consequences better. Do we pause and recognize him as our Lord? Or do we wade in and suddenly make a request of what he can do for us? Is my Christian life more about me acting like a spiritually spoilt spoilt child? I want, I want, I want. You know what I'm saying? This eternal Christmas list that I just come to God with. I'd like this, 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 and this. I think that was criminal one. I don't think criminal one says loads, but I think that's the situation. Maybe if you're really honest, you'd say, Pete, I'm a bit more like criminal one than I'd like to be. Or maybe you're like criminal two. I like to keep things very simple. There was another criminal, same situation, but he responds so differently. It says, but the other rebuked him. This is the other criminal. He's rebuking the first one, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. I find it fascinating because when the criminal too speaks, he doesn't go on about his immediate circumstances. Think about it. Yeah, what have I just said? The scene was he's being crucified. You know, see, number one says, help, get me out of here. <laughs> number two doesn't. It's quite a different take, really. The words that he speaks are very different. It's almost like, um, I don't know, there's a sense of fearing God. I don't know. Is it just because he's about to die? Is it because he's heard the words of forgiveness? Is it because Jesus is so calm? Is it the Holy Spirit? I don't really know. But I find that what he says, the words of criminal two, as I shall keep calling him, are huge what I would call steps for us on how do we approach God. Step one, you could say, he says he fears God. Now, this wouldn't be the impression for his whole life. Let's be honest, if he'd have feared God, he probably wouldn't have been there in the first place. Something has happened. Something somewhere has radically changed. And he's suddenly saying to criminal one, hey, why are you speaking like this? Don't you fear God? I'd like to ask us a question. Do you fear God? Do I fear God? Do I really fear God? I'll be honest, you know, I've brought up in the church and I've known God as my father and I preached that last week, you know, Father forgive, and I love that intimacy and we talk about it this morning, but there's something, isn't there, of respect, of his authority, of his power. It's almost like the first step for criminal one is, is realizing again we need to fear God. I don't want to get sidetracked here, so I shall make a quick comment and if you don't like it, park it and come back. I sometimes think we've, ditch Genesis 1 to 11 to our shame because it determines that God is our creator 
And if we don't understand that there is a God in heaven and that he has made us, we don't think there's a God to fear. And therefore, we become very what I call humanistic, and it's all about me and what I think rather than about the creator that's made me in the first place. And therefore, maybe as society, we've thrown out this fear and this respect of God. And you do what you fancy. If it's meaningful to you, it's meaningful. I think we've lost something of the fear of God. Second, this criminal, it's almost like, you know, the perfect sort of response. He admits that he's done something wrong. You know, I mean, if you listen to his word, <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like we're, we're condemned, and indeed justly. <laughs> Can you imagine it? You know, here's this criminal. I'm dying, and actually I, I deserve to die. Again, that's a huge challenge, isn't it? If, if I'm really honest, if I'm caught... I try and think of an excuse, don't you? <laughs> it's not my fault. If you will make chocolate biscuits like that and leave them around the house, I will eat them. You know, it's, it's not my fault that I've ploughed through five while you've been at work, Nikki. You shouldn't make them so nice. I mean, that's how we respond, isn't it? Do I say, I'm guilty, I'm sorry, or do I say it's really your responsibility? Well, you know, I can't help it. It was the way I grew up. I can't help it. It's my background. We can almost make those excuses. We don't like to admit it. Hey, I'm basically a good person. But this criminal was saying, no, actually, I've done wrong. I guess I'd ask that question. Do you admit, therefore, that you've done wrong before God? It goes on. This criminal says, we deserve punishment. Ah, oh, I don't know about you. See, I mean, I think I deserve grace. I don't know why, but I just like to plead on that. You know what I'm saying? Big brown eyes, trying, you know, I'll be better next time. You know, there's a sense of this criminal saying, I have done wrong. I fear God. I recognize I've done wrong. I deserve punishment. Oh, I don't know about you. I've always thought, why couldn't God lift up this of the corner of eternity and just sweep all my sins under the carpet? Because sometimes I don't like to admit that what I've done wrong deserves punishment. I'd like to think it could be ignored. It could be hidden. It could be forgotten. It could be overlooked. But the Bible says we do things wrong and they deserve punishment. Then, criminal two, he says, but this man, this man, he's talking about Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Almost like, you know, I, there's a fear of God. I've basically got to accept that I've done wrong. I accept I've done. But actually, if you look at this man, he's perfect. Jesus was perfect. That is what the Bible clearly says. He never sinned, never did anything wrong, never thought anything wrong. You know what I'm saying? Never answered back and thought, oh, I wish I could rewind the tape of life and not have said that. Jesus didn't go there. He was perfect. Surely this is the whole picture, isn't it? You know, the perfect lamb in the Old Testament that had to die is almost like to cover people's sin. Jesus was the perfect one. This is what this criminal acknowledges. He said to, he said to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. You know, it, he then recognizes that Jesus is a king. He recognizes Jesus has a kingdom. He recognizes that Jesus has a right to rule and to reign. He recognizes that Jesus is the boss, that he's in charge. You know what I'm saying? You think, wow, what a journey this guy has gone on. 
Do we really want Jesus to be the boss of our life? Do we really, you know, do we want to be like criminal one that says, oh, get me out of this mess. Golly, I've just, I've screwed up this year. 2012 has been bad. Get me out of it and we'll have a fresh start. Or do we say, actually, I will surrender everything to you. I mean, that's why we encourage people to get baptized, isn't it? Because baptism is a picture of you've died to yourself and you live in him. He's in charge. We often think of those different illustrations, don't we? It's almost like the, the, the car of your life and Jesus is in the driving seat. You know, and that's what it means. If he's the Lord, he's the one driving. And yet, if we're really honest, some of us are like backseat drivers, aren't we? No, no, I don't think you want to go left here, Lord. We'll go straight on. <laughs> he says, look, I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. No, no, no. Thank you very much. You know, it's almost like we try and control him. We try and get him to do what we want. Whereas actually this criminal says, hey, you're the king. Therefore, you have a right to do what you like. And then literally, this step of approaching these words on the cross, he pleads for help. I'll be honest, I... I probably let down my own kids. I've always taught this. If you do your best, your best is good enough. You know, we're not all going to learn French to A-level or something. <clears throat> I'm obviously letting out my own past again. But if you try your best, I'm really pleased. If, if you get an A for effort, great. But actually, the criminal recognizes that's not even good enough. Actually, what he does is he throws himself upon God and says, Help me. I need your help. I cannot do it on my own. And I think that's a huge challenge for us, isn't it? If we're really honest, can, do we think we can get by? Do we think we could manage? Do we think skin of our teeth? We're, no, actually, surely this voice at the cross is actually, Jesus, it's totally to you, I cling. It's nothing about me. I think if I had to think of one word for the voice that I'm thinking about this morning voices you could say of the two criminals it's surely this the gospel you just get this wonderful picture of the gospel it is never too late i tell you it's never too late to come to jesus where there is life there is hope you might be even sat here this morning saying pete you don't know what i've done you don't know who i've slept with you don't know how much tax i've fiddled you don't know who i've stitched up at work you no it's never too late I would say if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, it's never too late for you. It's never too late for you to come and find him. It's never too late for you to say sorry. I mean, let's think about it. I mean, this criminal, we don't know how much longer he had breath in his body. But actually, Jesus never turned him away, did he? Jesus didn't say to him, look, I'd just like you to think about that. Do you really understand what it means for me to be your king? <laughs> we'll have a couple of classes on it. And maybe in a month's time when I've watched how much you've put in the offering, then I'll accept it. He doesn't. Straight away. So what have we got here? We've got here criminal two that says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I want to say this. I think the voice from the cross is this. God does remember us. God does know us. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? God knows you. How can I argue that? I mean, I, I don't know, but I'll admit it. You know it. Most of you know me well. I forget things all too regularly. 
If you come up to me this morning and say, oh, Pete, we need this or that, unless I write it down, I get my phone out, I write it down, I'm as good as lying to you. I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? You suddenly, oh, shall we do something on Tuesday? Yeah, I'd love to do something on Tuesday. If I don't write it down, I will forget. It's not my age. <laughs> you know, let's be really frank. Isn't that why we have Facebook and that kind of stuff? You know what I'm saying? Because up pops somebody's birthday. Oh, great. Oh, bother. I've forgotten. That's another sorry it's late card I've got to get out of the drawer. You know what I'm saying? It's so easy to forget things. What does it mean when he says remember? Is it just, oh, do you know my name? What does it mean when we say to God, remember me? Well, actually, I think this is a biblical theme. I think there is something about being remembered by God. It's not that God just suddenly thinks about us. It's that God acts for us. It's not that God suddenly wishes us something, but God will intervene for us. So if you think about the, the Bible, um, in 1 Samuel 11, there's this woman and saying, Oh God, would you give me a baby? I want a baby. Please, would you give me this baby? If you look on your affliction of your servant and remember me, not forget me, then basically I would dedicate him to you. That was Hannah. There was this, it's almost like she's praying in grace, but I'm not just asking, I'll remember my circumstance. I'm saying, will you act for me? This is what this word remember means. Now, you might think, oh, Hannah, she was a good girl. Well, actually, in the Old Testament, we also get the story of a guy called Samson. I don't know if you know his story, but I mean, sometimes I think, God, why did you bless a guy like that? I mean, he just seemed to do all kinds of wicked things, get a load of foxes, set light to their tails, set them into the thing, the trees, you know, the, the crops caught fire. You know, and he's been a bit of a twit. He's, been, he's gone after these women, so he ends up getting caught because one of them shaves his head. He's made this commitment to God. And by now, you know, you imagine him as this, he's had his eyes plucked out and he's, you know, sort of shaved heads and you imagine him... And he cries out, God, would you remember me? Could I not die one more day, bring glory to you? And it said, God came upon him with strength. He pushed down the pillars. He killed more of God's enemies in his death than in his life. It's almost like God acting on his behalf. And that's the word that we're thinking of here. I tell you this, although there's, Isaac was telling me, seven point whatever billion people there are alive now, God wants to act on your behalf. And I think the criminal understood this. He was saying, Jesus, would you act on my behalf? Would you get involved? Would you intervene for me? I honestly believe that God wants, if you don't know him, to save you. But if you do know him, then God wants to use you to see other people come to know him. It says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I know that um, Edward was saying to us, Oh, come on, how about giving a leaflet away? He'd he give one to his guy he's sharing a house with. Well, why do we do that? Why? Because ultimately, I tell you this, it's, it's because I want people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I want them to know that there's a God who saves. So, you know, why would I want to go putting them through the doors? Because ultimately, I want them to come to a place that they'll hear some great news. We, we believe that God loves people. We believe that Jesus doesn't wipe them off and say, oh, you filthy rotten sinners. 
but actually he'll embrace them. He'll act on their behalf. That's why we want to do this stuff. And then what does Jesus say to him? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, this is not a shop in sort of Victorian age that made a nice TV program, if you were into it recently. My wife was watching it on a Tuesday night. Paradise was not this kind of grand shop where they sold grand things. Paradise, for me, is not a Phil Collins song. You know what I'm saying? What does he mean by paradise? Well, actually, they reckon that it was a Persian word, and it represented a walled garden. And often, paradise was a place where the king would walk with his most trusted friends. And so there's almost this picture that Jesus is saying to him. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me and we will talk as intimate friends. Today I'm not just going to be a king that you're going to be outside of the wall, but you're going to be inside. I'm not just going to be a king that's going to reign over you from a distance, but you're going to be a king that's going to be with me in my garden. It's almost like you're going to be a, I'm going to be a king and I'm going to have you close. I find it amazing, don't you, that, that uh, Jesus, he literally hangs on this cross to get beside this, this criminal, but he doesn't just say to you, you're going to be with me at Calvary. He says, you're going to be with me in paradise. You see, in his mercy, God doesn't give us what we deserve, but in his grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. And that's what Jesus is saying to this criminal, criminal too. I think this whole picture of walking in the garden is a wonderful, wonderful picture of God's grace. Because when, when was the last time that I think about God walking with someone in the garden? It's in Genesis. It says God walked in the garden, didn't it? And what happened there? They nicked something they were told not to have, a thief. So God said, you're a thief, get out of my garden. And he says he ends up putting this sword there, doesn't it? And this angel saying, you can't stay in the Garden of Eden anymore. And then what happens here? It's the cross. And what happens at the cross is he meets another thief. And he doesn't say, you're banished. He says, you can come close. And I think that's the whole difference of what the cross makes. You see, it's not because he's been good enough or it's not because of his own personal behavior. It's because of the fact that Jesus died on the cross that we could now know that intimacy with God. So when we're singing about it, or people are talking about it this morning, it's not us coming in and saying, oh great, we've done fine. No, it's almost like God saying, hey, I recognize what you've done is wrong, but because of the cross, you can come close. This forgiveness that God offers through Jesus Christ chatting on the cross is immediate and total. This criminal goes from being an enemy, a thief, to being intimate with God. Matthew Henry, some of you might have heard of him. He's a commentator who wrote on this. He describes this story as a monument of divine grace. I love that. It's almost like it's there and it's established and it's solid. And I just want you to realize it's all about grace. It's not about what we can do. Because this man literally has gone from guilty to gifted by coming to Jesus. It's not by what he's done. Uh, another uh, uh, author, in fact, he used to lead London um, School of Theology, which is just down the road here, says this is an example of outrageous grace at work. He's no longer a rebel 
but he's actually a subject of the king. There's been a total transformation. And that's what we believe, isn't it? If we come to Jesus, there can be a total transformation. I believe that we live in a world where people are looking for acceptance. That's why we buy the fashion that we do. Because what we're really trying to say is, will you accept me? If I've got this certain picture on my jumper, if I've got this certain logo on my trainers, will you accept me? That's why I think so often we get caught up in the house or the car or the decorations. Will you accept me? That's why sometimes even, you know, we, we want to tell people about our funniest stories. Will you accept me? Make people laugh. Will you accept me? I read about teenage girls that literally take photos of themselves naked, text it to their boyfriend. Why? Will you accept me? I think we live in a society that is desperate for acceptance, and I think Jesus offers it by grace. This sinner talks to Jesus, and he accepts. John Piper, he says about this, The world is full of those who rail against God in their self-righteousness and presume that the creator of the universe is obliged to make their life smooth. But there are only a few who own up to the fact that God owes us nothing and that any good to come our way will be due to his mercy and not out of his merit. I want to conclude. I know that we're going to worship God. It's great to come and sing at the end because actually we're so thankful. There are two criminal voices that we're listening to today. Somebody said, one thief was saved so that no sinner might despair, but only one so that no sinner might presume. Actually, we come because of grace, but we've got to come and say we're sorry. The cross at its heart is the offer of God's gracious forgiveness to those who will embrace it. I honestly believe that if you don't know Jesus, he wants to open his arms to you today. And if you do know him, remember it was nothing that you did to deserve it. Remember, just like that thief on the cross, you know what I'm saying? Doesn't matter how many leaflets you put out this week. Doesn't matter how early you were setting up the chairs. Doesn't matter how much money you put in the pot, you're accepted because Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. You see, his understanding of the cross was so different to other people. They saw the cross as defeat. He saw it as victory. To others, it meant shame. To Jesus, it meant glory. To the people of the day, it meant weakness. But Jesus turned the cross into a thing of power. What's your voice? Are you like criminal one that says, just do this for me? Or are you like criminal two that understands something of the amazing grace of Jesus Christ on the cross? We're going to respond in a song, so I'm going to hand over to Abby.